back, everyone, to another episode of Greenlit. Today, we're chatting with Mark Gill. Mark's a phenomenal producer and executive who has a really storied past working for some of the biggest and most well-known media companies in the world on some of arguably the most important projects, certainly in, in modern cinema history. So first off, Mark, thanks for, for taking the time and appreciate you chatting today. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. So I typically start out with just understanding a little bit more about what, what lit your fuse in this business and what you've seen over the, the course of uh, your time in this industry, what's changed, what's been similar uh, as, again, you went through the last several decades of, of building out your career? Sure. So uh, I went to school for journalism and was fortunate to get a job at the Los Angeles Times, which was a rare. Usually it was, you get to go to Dayton, Ohio or somewhere like that. So I yeah. thought, it's, it's amazing. It's going to be great. And then it really wasn't. Um, and I thought it must be the Los Angeles Times. It couldn't possibly be anything else. There were too many journalists. It was a stodgy place. Uh, and so I switched over to Newsweek Magazine, which was another great job that I didn't deserve. And I thought, okay, this is going to work out great. And then it wasn't. And I started asking people who were in their 30s and 40s, what's wrong with me? I can't stand this. And they're like, we all hate it. You should get out while you're young. Uh, so I did. And um, when you're a journalist and you leave it, your choices are basically graduate school or alcoholism or publicity. <laughs> and yeah. you, can, you can do alcoholism and publicity, but... Um, I did publicity. So I went to work for an ad agency that represented a lot of movie companies. And uh, that's when I got the bug. And there were a couple of reasons why. One of them was it was a lot less sort of self-serious. Everything was not sort of stern and you can't crack a joke and you can't have any fun. And also the people were just fascinating and sometimes mm -hmm. in, you know, psychotic kind of ways, but but really, really interesting. So uh, and of course, the stories are great and the, the history is great and so on. Um, and I started off working for like great companies like MGM and United Artists and the yep. early days of Miramax and the early days of New Line and so on. So it was a very, um, very lucky time to be to be coming into the business. And uh, after about three years of that, I got called by Columbia Pictures saying, do you want to come you know, work here and do sort of the same thing for us? And uh, my boss at the time said, oh, the studio head's about to get fired. That's a terrible decision. And of course, that was also wrong. It was an amazing decision. <laughs> Um, so, uh, this is the period where, uh, Sony bought the company and everybody said, oh, that's going to be a disaster. And of course, that's probably the most successful acquisition of a studio in the history of Hollywood. It's still going mm. well. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it was immediately apparent that it was going to be just fine. I mean, they, they had some things they wanted, but they were not going to come in and try to run the place. They, they let people who were in Hollywood run the place. Uh, and you know, there's, the, there were some amazing movies there, most notably Boys in the Hood, I guess would be the thing I remember most readily, but, uh. You know, A League of Their Own, Terminator 2, Prince of Tides, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and then, of course, what happens in all of these jobs is you get fired. Um, they they say that you set an egg timer when you start a job as an executive. It's not, will you get fired? It's when. There's, hmm. there's no if. It's, it's going to happen, right? So I got blown out of there, and I had met uh, through Robert Rodriguez, uh, Harvey, and Bob Weinstein about a year before I got fired. And I had said to them at the time, I'm under contract. I can't go anywhere. Well, all of a sudden, I wasn't. Um, and they said, do you want to come be our head of marketing, which was absurd. I was utterly unqualified to do it. And, uh, I thought that sounded pretty appealing. I knew all the, well, I knew a lot of the, the war stories. Um, and uh, a lot of people had warned me that this could be life ruining. Um, and I thought, you know what, I'll try it anyway. Um, and, um, I guess this speaks to how dumb I am because most people lasted three months or maybe a year. And some people lasted three years. I lasted eight. Um, and uh, first three years, I was the head of marketing. And I think the second movie I worked on was Pulp Fiction, which was phenomenal luck, right? 
um, and that ran all the way through to the Academy Awards and so on. And you could argue changed uh, what everybody thought was possible of independent film. Creatively, it was phenomenal, of course, but it, by that, I mean really economically, like the upside was enormous. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, there was a period there where everything just seemed to work. Right. So we had the English patient go sweep the Oscars. We had Shakespeare in love upset, saving private Ryan. We had Chicago win. It was, and in between, there were a lot of other great films, you know, uh, in the bedroom came out of nowhere to get five nominations. It was like every year we had a best picture nominee and there were only five of them at that time. So, mm. um, so that was the good part of it. Um, and after three years, I, uh, it said to them, I said to Harvey, I'm going to go leave and take a job at Paramount. And all of a sudden he made me uh, head of the LA office and you know, let me get into production and acquisitions and all that. So, which was remarkable. Um, and look, Harvey is truly a terrible person in, in the, all the ways that we now know. Um, but he was also a genius in, analytically and creatively. And, and as a salesman, he was the best at each of those I've ever seen. And it was all in one person. The tragedy is he was also a psychopath. Mm -hmm. uh, so the learnings were amazing if you could just, you know, don't learn the bad stuff, right? Sure. Um, and the exposure to filmmakers and, and actors was amazing. And the uh, the um, sense of what was possible, that it wasn't all just formulas and cookie cutters that you could really, you know, make some interesting stuff. I mean, I, I went in to pitch him making a movie about Frida Kahlo and he said, let me get this straight. You want to make a period movie with a, about a Mexican lesbian in a wheelchair with a mustache? And I said, you forgot the unibrow. Um, mm -hmm. And then we made it. Um, and, you know, nominated for six Academy Awards and uh, sort of, um, I think, was the moment where Selma Hayek's mother finally said to her, OK, I'm glad you left Mexico and went to America. I mean, it was kind of meaningful, right? Yeah. Um, so so there were amazing things about it. And then after eight years, they wanted me to stay for another six. And I called a few friends and they said, you'll be dead. <laughs> this will be too much. Um, you know, they'll be alive, but you'll be dead. Um, so I went off to work and start the hilariously named Warner Independent Pictures, which is, of course, not um, an easy thing to do. That was a place that was set up to do Harry Potter and Batman really well and didn't quite know what to make of, um, you know, Good Night and Good Luck and March of the Penguins and so on. We had a lot of success, but culturally it was just like we were oil and water. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. So uh, after about uh, four years of that, it was like, OK, you're fired again. <laughs> Recurrent theme here, right? Uh, and uh, that was the first time I raised money uh, from uh, folks all over the world, some in Dubai, a lot in America, and started a company called The Film Department. And uh, we made one movie that turned out great, which was Law Betting Citizen with uh, Jerry Butler and Jamie Foxx, and it threw off a ton of cash and worked out well. Uh, and then the financial crisis came, and the hedge fund that had the middle chunk of the cash said, yeah, we're, uh, we're going to foreclose on the company. So it went down. Uh, I then spent five years uh, working at Millennium Films and trying to help them, you know, get some better movies, which I think we did with the Olympus's Fallen series and Hitman's Bodyguard and so on. And um, and then uh, on the strength mostly of of all that, was able to then go uh, raise money again for a company called Solstice Films, um, Solstice Studios rather, which um, made the Russell Crowe movie Unhinged, which is the Road Rage movie. Um, and um, is now in post on this uh, Ben Affleck, Robert Rodriguez movie called Hypnotic. Uh, but the company got shut down in the middle of, uh, of COVID because investors were just not ready to go again. So um, and so now I'm, you know, um, producing a couple of other films and and raising the money again. So um, my, a lot of people might say, wow, that's really crazy. You must do a lot of things wrong. You're getting fired all the time. Things go bad. They go sideways, this and that. It's like, no. I'm one of the nine, the five percent that's still alive at my age. I'm in my fifties. Right. Like almost everybody else my age is gone. 
I've had a bumpy ride, but compared to a lot of other people, I've been really lucky. That's just mm-hmm. what it is. And I think that you, 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 you speak that, to people, people needing to be resilient or needing, needing yeah. to understand what they're getting into. This is what it is. And not to, not to cut you off at all. I wanted to pause you there. There's, there's so much to unpack. I want to unpack very first. You made the comment around people say, once you get a job as an executive, you start an egg timer and it's not mm. a matter of, of if, but when. Why do you think that is? And you think that that's just continued to be consistent? I, I certainly feel that way. I see it with you know peers that go into studios or agencies or streamers that it feels like it's predestined. They'll be gone within a, a certain time frame. There are some that feel like, okay, maybe they navigated, but very, very few. Why do you think that is? And, and do you have other contemporaries, Mark, that you look at and say, wow, I can't believe that person's been there for 15, 20 years? Yes. Um, uh, it, it's pretty unusual um, that somebody lasts that long. Um, and it's always been true. If you look back to the history of Hollywood, you know, there were, they were, I mean, Louis B. Mayer nearly got thrown out of, out of uh, MGM. He just got lucky at the last minute, the stock market crashed and uh, the investor who was taking over shares of Lowe's, which was the parent company, all of a sudden went bankrupt and couldn't take over the company and fire him. Louis B. Mayer, like like Metro Goldwyn Mayer, right? The, the, the M and MGM almost got fired. Um, and that's just what it is. Um, the people who last tend to uh, have been, been at places that have had really good runs. Uh, like my friend, Doug Dalgrad was at, at Sony for 27 years. Yeah. Um, and that was amazing. But even eventually he finally, you know, he was president of the company. He'd done very, very well. Even he finally just uh, hit the end somewhere along the way. Um, I, I think, look, it's not unlike sports, right? Which is the demands are so high. And then if this isn't working really great, let's just throw everybody out and start over or throw some of them out and start over. That's really what it is. So it's, it's, it is cultural, but it's also, um, there's just so much pressure and economic pressure and cultural pressure. And um, so I don't think it's going to change. In fact, if anything, I think it's actually things turn a little faster. I mean, I see people go into streaming jobs and they're out 18 months later. Right. It used to be, you at least had three years to try to do something. Sure. Can, can we rewind as well? This is now hitting on the sort of second point I wanted to unpack, which is Pulp Fiction. Right? Yeah. Myself, a lot of people, certainly my age, you know, I'm 35, came up at a time where that movie sort of changed everything, right? I remember yeah. it being totally taboo as a kid. I remember hearing about it, seeing about it everywhere. And by the time I saw it as a teenager, it was just, I was already hooked on film, but that with that movie still to this day resonates as one of the most important movies, period. I was literally out over the weekend with uh, a couple who have a teenager, kid's 13 years old, and he's really getting into film. And they're sort of monitoring what they're allowing him to watch at different ages and not allow. And he is begging to watch Pulp Fiction. And as <laughs> someone who's, who's interested in film, and you sort of look at it, it's like, okay, how many years ago was that? It was like 33 years ago, yeah. that movie. Oh, yeah. And it's still as relevant to people that are interested in movies as ever before. Love any stories to sort of yeah. just walk through on well, this. It was, um, I, I came into it when it was, uh, when it was done. So uh, they had, they had just been to Cannes. Uh, I, they had, the year before they had sold to Disney. So they had money to hire people. And so I got hired um, sort of right around the time the movie was about to be released. Um, so I, I missed all the fun of the production and going to Cannes and all that stuff. But, you know, everybody said it was one of the most magical things ever because the, because for the right reason, the creativity was off the charts, right? I mean, we've right. Just never seen anything like this. And I'm not sure we've seen anything much like it ever since either. Um, so it was, you know, not only was it original, but it was extraordinary. And it, it, you know, it deserves its reputation as 
one of a couple of the best films of that decade and one of the best films of that century, you know, mm -hmm. it's incredible. And, and I think your point is well taken, which is the fact that somebody who's 13 in 2023 is desperate to see it. That tells you everything. That's staying right. there. Yeah. I mean, most movies are, are, you know, you see them and then, okay, maybe you remember them for a couple of weeks or a month, but forget it after that. Right. And something you remember for that long, that's, that's, that's potent. It really is. And it's, it's crazy that in the age we're in now where there's just, the total commoditization of content that there are certain movies from that era and even eras before, but very few, it feels like the era of now that become a piece of the cultural fabric. That movie is a piece of the cultural fabric period. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like marketing it and building a campaign around it? And obviously Tarantino was a really relatively new director only with uh, reservoir dogs under his belt. Yeah, it, it, one of the most enjoyable things I've had the fortune, good fortune to do a few times is to work on somebody's movie where they get discovered, quote unquote, or where they really pop. So John Singleton on Boys in the Hood, for example, or uh, yep. you know Todd, Todd Field on In the Bedroom, but Quentin popped more than all of them combined. That was just, it was just like he became the new darling of show business and deservedly so. Um, and I would like to tell you that it was a really hard movie to market. No, it wasn't. <laughs> like, the reviews were perfect. Everybody right. loved it. Uh, it was, you know, it had enough going for it, whether in terms of uh, intensity and relationships and star power and and drama and tension and violence and all the rest of it, it was like, oh, this is just a dream. Um, so when I tell you that I got lucky that that was one of the worst first things I worked on, I really mean it. It was like, it was just, it was so much fun. And uh, and from the minute it opened, it, it just worked. So there was never a moment where you're like, oh no, we're in trouble, we gotta fix this, which is usually the case, right? There's somewhere along the way of a movie or a campaign where you just, you just, you know, what is that famous phrase? Everything seems like a failure in the middle. Yeah. This never, this never did. It just, it just went from strength to strength. Um, and, you know, it was super fun to also be um, kind of, Quentin really had brought back John Travolta and that was amazing because he's such a nice guy and it was just beloved. and. For some reason, Hollywood had sort of given him the cold shoulder, and it was awesome to see him get to come back and, uh, you know, and see Bruce Willis do something a little different, which was fun, and and it was just great. It's excellent. Let's continue on, sort of unpacking your your overview of the, the last couple decades of your career. The 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 jumping from lily pads, and as the business changed, needing to jump at, at sometimes, and you know, having to jump at others, and combinations, I'm sure, at, at others yet. We, we use the phrase resiliency and the, the need or necessity to really have that to survive this business. It's interesting. Most of these conversations we end up having on, on Greenlit, people will talk about really just the high points of their career, but leave out the low points. I think you've done a really good job of saying, like you did, getting, getting to where you are in your career, you're, you're a survivor. And that, that's a huge, huge win in this business. If you had to boil it down to one, two, three principles that have gotten you there where you are now and where you'll continue building to next. What does that look like, especially for people that are in that middle that may feel super challenging? Or even people at the beginning. I mean, the, the thing that, that I always tell everybody, and I've, I've seen it be true, not just for me, but for many, many of the other people, is you have to outwork everybody. 
that's just a that's table stakes now. It used to be that was a way to you know really rise quickly. Now that's just the bare minimum. Um, that's one. Um, the second thing is that um, you need to be extremely adaptable. So when I left Warner Independent, which was 2007, I could see it was going to get a lot harder to be in the art house business if you didn't have studio backing because they have all these foreign presale deals that'll get you 10 or 12 million dollars a movie. And that could be the difference between this works out great and oh my God, it's a disaster. Um, so I switched over into doing what I like to call modern day French connection movies, which is action movies and thrillers and all that. And I didn't do it because I just like to, you know, change my hair color. I did it because I just couldn't figure out another way to keep going. Sure. Um, and I happen to love those movies. So it was not a, not a hard choice. Um, but the other thing I think that's so important is um, most people either have learned how to spell or how to add. They haven't learned both. Um <laughs> And you need to learn both. Um, and by that, I mean, you need to understand creativity and storytelling. And there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but you also have to understand something about the economics of the whole thing, because unfortunately, those big trends are going to shape your career, whether you like it or not. I mean, if you just look at the the earthquakes that have been happening in Hollywood over the last you know 12 months with sort of rethinking, hmm, this one to one window streaming thing may not be yeah. the only way to go, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I've been saying for five or six years, like streaming is fine, but this theatrical followed by these other windows is actually pretty smart and we shouldn't just be throwing it in the trash can. And mm -hmm. now I think finally people are like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, we should probably have that too. Um, so it, it, it's wise to know a little bit about the creativity, a lot about the creativity, but also something about the economics. You, um, in prep for this, uh, we, we pulled a quote that you had, which was setting a release schedule is like playing chess on the ocean even oh, yeah. without a pandemic. You know, fil yeah. Films tend to move a lot. And I remember when we first met, you know, we were just you know, walking through strategy around solstice, the strategy around what you're working on now and theatrical being a big part of that. And you've been a pretty big rallying cry for theatrical, even as the landscape over the last, let's say since March, 2020, and when it became really difficult, hmm. you're, you're a big believer in it. What, what does that look like now, that chess match on, on it, the ocean? It, it looks better um, for those of us who are making movies, a little worse if you own theaters. And the reason, of course, is that the drop in the number of wide release films has been pronounced from the studios. If you look at pre-COVID, the number was on average from the major studios, about 95 wide release movies. It's now on average 57. That's a 38% drop. Where did they go? Mostly to streaming and maybe a little bit to budget cuts. Um, and as a consequence, therefore, there's more room for each movie that does come out theatrically to open and stay alive and run. Um, so that's good. The bad news is there are certain things that just aren't working the way they used to. You know, documentaries are doing phenomenal on streaming, but are really struggling in theaters. Art films this year are performing at about one third the level they did pre-COVID. That's worrying. I hope it gets better. Um, you know, romantic comedies uh, so far seem to be doing a lot better on streaming. Now that I've said that, there'll be a great one in theaters tomorrow. Uh, yeah. But but generally speaking, that's the case. But uh, you know, the the lazy narrative is, oh, it's only the the two hundred million dollar movies that are doing well in theaters. Well, that just isn't true at all. I mean, you can just take Jason Blum's horror movies as a start, but you can take a lot of other things too. So. Um, it's been really interesting to see that um, that people want to go to the theaters, maybe not for everything they used to, but for a lot of things. And then from an actor's point of view or a director's point of view, the ability to have something stick in this culture is much, much harder if you're on streaming. Mm -hmm. you know, if you've got 30, 40, 50 million dollars in prints and advertising money going out around a movie and you have to go see it all at once because there's this focus on the opening weekend, 
has a funny way of, of getting the culture to pay attention, right? Right. Um, I mean, we saw it, we've seen it happen many times. It happened, of course, with the menu last fall. And, you know, you could argue that it happened this last weekend with Cocaine Bear, right? I mean, that thing just took off. And it's, yeah. I, I can't go anywhere without people talking about it. It's amazing. Um, and the best headline ever, you know, Cocaine Bear snorts 2 million on Thursday, right? You know, how good is that? Um, but I, that movie and streaming would never have that sort of a cultural impact. So right. there is something about how we launch movies theatrically that actually wasn't so wasn't so dumb after all. It is it is a way to get on the board, in, which is much much harder to do if you're a streaming uh, streaming film. Now, streaming series, you may have a different argument, but we're just talking about film, right? You you touch on uh, Jason Blum a bit. Were you guys together during the Miramax days? Did we you were. have overlap at all? Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, he and uh, Amy Israel, who's now one of the top people at Showtime, were. Uh, were running acquisitions at that time, and they were great at it. Um, and they've both gone on to do phenomenally well. Well, this is the other deep irony of Harvey, right? Which is he taught all of us to be pretty good at this. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just didn't pick up the bad behavior, you just picked up the good parts, you learned a lot. Sure, sure. Can you talk a little bit about, um, I, I know you have this Ben Affleck project that, that's in post and um, it was the last project with Solstice. What will that project look like from, from a distribution standpoint now that obviously the business model has changed? Or evolve since well, the there's, iteration. There's a requirement for to be released theatrically on 2000 screens. So I hope that's what's going to happen. I'm actually no longer involved in the movie. So I, I don't know with certainty, but I think that's everybody's intention. Understood. Understood. So in, in, in terms of, um, again, if, if you could give yourself one piece of advice, early stage, middle stage, as you're, as you're going through this, I know you touched on the principles around resiliency and hard work and being super adaptive, but if you had to boil it down to, to one thing that has been the, the biggest learning lesson or the biggest or sort of carrying of the torch, if you will, throughout your career, what does that look like, especially now as the business once again seems like it's going to, to change? Good stories never go out of style. If you know what one is, you'll be okay. Now, that may require you to understand not only what will be great once people get into the theater to see it, but also what can be encapsulated in marketing in 30 to 30 seconds to two and a half minutes in order to get people in. So conceptually, it has to be strong also. But I'm sorry, good stories never go out of style, <laughs> ever. And and the best stories, the ones that really captivate people, uh, they come from all over the place and they don't have to become for big movies. In fact, in many, many cases, they come from tiny movies. <laughs> Yeah, I think everything everywhere all at once is a phenomenal example of that, right? If you'd gone really to, pitch, to pitch that to most places, I'm sure the answer would have been pass. But yeah. God, God bless A24, they backed it and and the movie's phenomenal and it will deserve everything it gets in terms of accolades, which I think is going to be a lot. I think it's going to be a lot as well. Can you speak to a little bit about A24? Yeah, we, we were talking about this earlier in another conversation recently, just about what they've done as a as a film and television company seems to be the modern day equivalent of Miramax, right? They've they've built incredible cultural relevance. They've done it in really a direct-to-consumer way where they've got a, a brand that perhaps, yes, Miramax had a brand, but the brand is different when it's on a bunch of apparel and digital and no they're question. so good with social and spanning it across podcasts and companion pieces on each of the films. And it seems like they're playing the game they're, they're playing chess while others feel like they're playing checkers, frankly, especially as I agree. So how do you think about them? Well, Daniel Katz is another uh, Miramax uh, uh, alumnus um, and a brilliant guy. And look, they've done the impossible. When they started that company, I thought, oh, man, this is the sweet spot of difficult. 
and they have just crushed it um, and in all the ways that you said. Um, but curation has been the key to this, right? They have been incredibly gifted at not only finding things that resonate that are great stories, but then also, as you say, in marketing and community building and and really um, getting to an audience in ways that are arguably unrivaled, right? I mean, I, I spent a lot of time uh, looking at what it was that they were doing to open these horror movies to, you know, great results with a, a fraction of the the spend that the studios were looking at. And they did some very, very clever work in digital and, and the community building is a huge part of it, of course, but like, I mean, they're amazing on every level and they've, they've, they've done the thing that I just thought was virtually impossible, which is they have, they've created arguably the most interesting company of the last 15 years in a space that's the most difficult. It's amazing. It really is amazing. It really is amazing. When, when you think back uh, over your career, there's a number of projects that seem so obvious that must have been unbelievable. You touched on them from from Polk to Shakespeare to Frida, Chicago. That whole era is just unbelievable. But is there any project or projects that from an outside perspective, whether someone's a crazy cinephile or just a, a passive lover of movies, that we wouldn't necessarily think, oh, that one must have been a real treat or lack thereof? <laughs> well, look, most movies have their point where they're where you just would wish that they would go away and get out of your life and they're really difficult and that's okay. Um, but um in terms of um sort of uh lasting resonance, um that and I, I think what we're looking for here is is something that is not um maybe as prominent in the yeah in, in memory as, as as you might hope. Um you know, it's funny, um the uh there was a small film that uh, was made by Hani Abu Asad, which we didn't make, but we bought when I was at Warner Brothers called Paradise Now. Okay. Um, and it's, um, this is now, what, early 2000s. Um, and it's, I think he made it for $500,000. But it's the story of two brothers who, uh, Palestinian, who are um, thinking about um, um, becoming suicide bombers. And you think, oh man, really? <laughs> Do I have to see that again? And even then we were sort of like, there's got to be fatigue around this topic. I don't think so. And then you see mm -hmm. the movie and, you know, I have just about zero sympathy for terrorism. And yet it was such a human story that I felt like I just couldn't turn my eyes away, which is of course why we bought it. And, you know, it's why it went on to, um, to do so well, like it won the golden globe award for best foreign film and so on. It did not win the Academy award, but, um, but most people never saw it. I mean, it was a foreign language film, tiny little movie. And everybody I know who did see it, irrespective of their politics on the issue said, that was fascinating. That was really hmm. interesting artwork. Um, you know, I, I uh, so that that's probably the, just in terms of subject matter that should have been an instant, like, no way, I'm not seeing this. Uh, then there being something that not only were we seeing it, we were buying it. That's quite something. It is. Yeah, it is. Does a movie like that, I ask this question often, both when I have conversations here on, on Greenlit, but then also when I uh, just general day-to-day -day business discussions, would a project like that get made today or bought today by someone like that distributor? Yeah, I, don't, that I don't know. I don't know. I doubt it. Um, I think there's just so much more sensitivity. First of all, there's executives are so much more worried about their jobs than they were. Um, you know, if, if you're, if you were pretty much guaranteed three years in a, in a job before that was just enough time to get some movies going and, and prove yourself. Whereas if you're only guaranteed 18 months, you're not taking any chances. So I think the climate is worse and I'm not blaming the executives. I'm blaming, blaming the climate. 
Um, and there's also this just thirst for um, the bigger, the bigger, the bigger, right? And um, so, uh, you know, might it get made by some independent financiers? Yes. Would it get distributed in the U.S. as readily? I'm not so sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. A question that that's just sort of struck me is your story of going from journalism into marketing, into marketing within a very well-known and at that time it was just booming uh, independent, but really a studio business. And then going into the studios, where do you see the through line, right? I mean, ultimately for going, going from marketing into being the head of production for a company that's winning multiple Academy Awards, how do you connect those dots? What skills cross it's, over it's, from those it's, areas? It's storytelling is all it is. I mean, journalism is a form of storytelling. And, you know, if I just think about what it taught me how to do other than, you know, the, the particular skills of that, but the the, the applicable skills that, that transfer were learning how to think and organize your thinking and tell a story in a way that was captivating to people, right? Now, when you're beholden to the facts, of course, there are limitations, but when you can start making stuff up, okay, here we go. Marketing is absolutely storytelling, you know, and sometimes the story you're telling is like, eh, it's kind of half related to the movie, right? I mean, people used to call me all the time complaining about something. And I used to say to them, you haven't reached the the faithful representation department, you've reached the marketing department. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and then, of course, when you're uh, working in marketing, one of the things you're doing is dealing with films that are in post that are problematic. They're not having good test screenings. So you're having to recut them and rewrite them and so on. And that was sort of my introduction into that world. And it turned out I had some facility for it, which is, I think, part of why Harvey decided to give me a chance doing the uh, something more than just marketing. But all of this requires one thing, which is how do you tell a story that that conveys emotional transference that's distinctive that hopefully is a little sticky in, in, in retrospect and that feels like it has some meaning. And if you can do all those things and maybe provide a little entertainment along the way, okay, that's going to be good. What are you most excited about right now, either that you're working on or about the way the business is evolving? Well, uh, by far, the thing I'm most excited about is that the reports of theatrical's death were, um, were premature and exaggerated. So that's just huge. And, you know, we can all thank Tom Cruise and Paramount and Tom Rothman and Sony and, you know, the theater owners for hanging in there because, oof, I mean, that was that was not easy. I mean, if you think about the decision to put out Spider-Man in the middle of the pandemic, that, that was brave, right? That could have that could have been a big loser. That could have been could have cost Tom a couple hundred million dollars and maybe even his job. Of course, he was right. And it's made them fortune. And it really emboldened people to think about, OK, we can get back to theaters. But that was right in the heart of the Omicron, you know, phase. Yeah. It was not good. Um, so thank God for that. Um, and, you know, I remain excited as I always have been about like finding the next good story that, that you just think people are really going to respond to and love, you know, and it doesn't have to be the one that wins the Academy Award. It can be the one that's just really entertaining, right? Um, people need a break, right? Life is hard. Um, it always has been. You could argue maybe things are a little more upset now than they have been in a long time. Um, people's lives are really tough. And if you can give them a little relief and something that reminds them that it's good to be alive, nothing wrong with that. If you own a movie theater or a chain of movie theaters, how do you think about that? Knowing what you know just so intimately about the theatrical business. I think it has to be an experience you can't get anywhere else, which which is going to have to involve um, probably um, food service and perhaps also shopping of some sort, but it's got to be destination, right? If it's basically just a slightly bigger screen, slightly better audio than I can get in my house, 
I don't think that's going to be enough for for a lot of places. So, you know, the more we can get toward what I'll call the Alamo Draft House model, yeah, and the sooner we can get there, uh, I think that's going to be good. And, and by the way, this doesn't have to happen tomorrow; it'll take time. But what you have to do, you know, in all businesses, is provide a point of differentiation. If you're commoditized, it's over, right? Right. So, okay, there is the, I mean, the really good news is that this is the least expensive form of getting out of the house that really exists, right? It's a lot cheaper than a sporting event or a concert, cheaper than most restaurants. Um, and, you know, everybody whines and complains about movie ticket prices, but it's pennies compared to like that Taylor Swift concert. Thanks, yeah. You know, thanks Live Nation. And thank you, scalpers, right? Um, so, so that's a start, but I don't think it's enough. I think there's got to be like this is a great destination. I want to go here because it's just fun to hang out here. Um, and, you know, we've seen that start to work in a few places and it's, it's just, there's just going to have to be a lot more of it. That's not easy to do. It's not free. Uh, but I do think it will work. It's great. But my last question, it's always a question framed around the process of actually getting a project greenlit, hence the name of the show. How much, and for you, just given the, the, the massive span of so many major, major projects. I don't even necessarily want to hone in on one, but rather just the themes that you've seen over the years. You've touched on great story, you've touched on resiliency, you've touched on being able to connect with audiences and finding that that differentiation and delivering it. Anything else you see in terms of getting something greenlit today versus getting something like Freedom made back when you got it made, what's changed? Uh, and it can be one or multiple things. I think the biggest change has been there's always been a lot of fear in Hollywood, but there's more than ever. And the insurance policy that executives tend to lean on is uh, pre-existing IP. You know, it's a, <laughs> a best-selling book or it's a video game that was a hit or whatever. And the theory behind this is partly it's easier to market. But I promise you more of the problem is later when somebody says, why did we make this? Why did I listen to you? You can say, well, it was based on this famous IP. Sure. So you can take that too far. And I would argue that we have in Hollywood and that the desperation for original stories um, which, you know, can give you knives out or pick your favorite thing or cocaine bear this last weekend uh, is profound um, and is a real thing. But that's the biggest change. Um, it's still true that if you've got a great story and you can attract a director and the actors, that's how you win. You know, if you I don't care how great your story is, if for whatever reason you're not attracting the the director and the actors, it's not getting made this year. Right. Thank you again, Mark. A real that's pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank really you. Thank you it. so much. And uh, look forward to, to connecting on things in the future. Thank you again for carving out the, the time to chat. Yeah, my pleasure. Be well. Take care.